This is Banished and I'm Amna Khalid. In the age of cancel culture, it comes as no surprise that the publishing industry has cowered before demands to remove problematic books. Sensitivity readers have weighed in to prevent young adult books from going to the press. Indeed, a number of young adult authors have cancelled their own works in response to criticism about representation of minorities. Children's book publishing, too, is clearly feeling the pressure. Just last year, David Pilkey pulled his best-selling Ook and Gluk in response to a Change.org petition that criticized the book for its racist imagery and stereotypical tropes. Even the venerated children's author Dr. Seuss is not immune. His estate recently announced that it is no longer going to allow the publication and licensing of six of his books. Why? According to his estate, these books portray minority groups in ways that are hurtful and wrong through the use of stereotypical imagery. This week, Dr. Seuss Enterprises announced that six books by the legendary children's author and illustrator will no longer be published because they, quote, portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. The books are, and I think that I saw at a Mulberry Street, If I Ran the Zoo, Michaela Gutt's Pool on Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super and The Cat's Quizzer. Because of the racist depictions in the decades-old children's book. There hadn't been an earth-shattering outcry, but they recognize the impact that these images might have on readers, especially kids, and they're trying to fix it because Dr. Seuss books should be fun for all people. Black, white, straight, gay, sneeches, both star-bellied and plain, Lorax's barbalutes, all the Who's down in Whoville, and the strange, angry creature named Fufu the Snoo. Should these books no longer be published? Does a single stereotypical representation justify the pulling of a book? How do we recognize racial stereotypes and who gets to call the shots? On today's episode, my conversation with Brian Jones, the author of the biography of Theodore Geisel, titled Becoming Dr. Seuss. We talked about how he sees the Seuss estate's decision to seize the publication of six titles, and we also discussed how Philip Nell, professor of English at Kansas State University, sees racial caricature as a key feature of Geisel's works, including The Cat in the Hat. In our conversation, Brian sketched out a portrait of a surprisingly complex character. Far more than just a children's author, Geisel got his start as a political cartoonist and played an instrumental role in developing American propaganda during World War II. I asked Brian to sketch out the arc of the man's development. I think I would track it kind of in thirds, which is the way I broke the book down as well. So sort of the first arc of his career is he's not a great student, but he's a good cartoonist and his wife encourages him at Oxford, his soon-to-be wife, at Oxford to stop studying English and be a cartoonist. So he moves back to New York City and gets jobs. It's hard to believe now, but you could actually earn a living drawing cartoons for the New Yorker and Vanity Fair back in the 1920s. Oh, those glorious days when you could earn a living that way. <laughs> Being a cartoonist, right. It's hard to believe. And he ends up lucking into a really good gig in advertising. I won't tell the whole story, but basically one of his cartoons where he mentioned a certain product got seen by the ad man, the sort of Don Draper of the time, got seen <laughs> by the ad man running the campaign who hired Dr. Seuss then to be the ad man on the campaign which Seuss did for the next 17 years. And so he actually got into advertising at that time and worked on a lot of successful campaigns. That was paying most of his bills the entire time that he's still, you know, drawing cartoons. But in the late 30s, his work in advertising prevents him from taking a lot of outside jobs. The one job he can take is children's books. 
So Seuss writes his first children's book, which is, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, not because, or at least at this time, he feels a compelling need to tell stories for children, but because the money's on the table. It's one of the few jobs he can take as a side hustle from his ad gig. And so he writes Mulberry Street and sort of breaks into children's books, but not really enough to do that full time. And so he continues to write children's books on up until prior to World War II. And that's when, before the United States enters the war, that's when he's hired by PM Newspaper, which is a progressive, and especially at that time, there were very few Democrat-leaning newspapers in New York City. He's hired by PM to be their editorial cartoonist. And so he stops everything, and he submits daily cartoons on the politics of the era right prior to our entry into the war, and then for about the next year after. Eventually, he enlists in the military at age 39. And one of the formative experiences he has is he ends up at the Signal Corps. He's stateside still. He's in California. But he ends up in the Signal Corps producing American propaganda under the tutelage of Frank Capra, of all people, who teaches him about storytelling, about narrative, mm. about the conciseness that Capra's bringing to it from his experience in film. And he also is brought in contact with Chuck Jones, the very famous, or at least later, the very famous Warner Brothers animator and director and writer who wrote or directed pretty much every Looney Tunes cartoon you know and love. And Jones teaches him how to how to storyboard. So those two experiences right there really sort of change his approach to narrative and to storytelling and to conciseness. Post-World War II, with that experience under his belt, he continues producing children's books at the rate of about one, maybe a year every two years. But now he's starting to think more and more about the specific needs of children as readers. Mm. There's a big moment in about 1949 where he actually teaches a course on children's writing at the University of Utah, I think it is, which is the first time he ever put down on paper why books for kids matter. So that's at the point he sort of hears the calling and he's still trying to articulate it. So he moves on through the 1950s trying to articulate this. And the big event in his life and the moment where he really sort of becomes Dr. Seuss is in about 1957. He sort of roped in by novelist John Hersey, who writes an article in Life magazine, doing what we always do about every three to five years here. Why aren't kids learning? What's wrong with kids today? And Hersey says, you know, one of the big problems is primers for children are terrible. Kids don't want to learn about reading because reading books suck. They're awful. Why would you terrorize a child with these terrible Dick and Jane books? <laughs> if only Dr. Seuss would at least draw Dick and Jane. So Seuss doesn't end up drawing Dick and Jane, but he ends up getting a hold of the the educator-approved vocabulary list that drive these reading primers, and he's challenged to write a reading primer that kids can't put down. And that turns out to be the cat in the hat. And that's the game changer for him. That's the moment that he's a huge success. He can now become a writer full-time. But that's when the real mission for Sue starts. Because what I didn't realize at the time is part of what makes those books so special, and he creates the beginner books imprint that moves forward from that point, is they've got a pedagogy behind them. They actually have an educator-approved word list that's very tightly restricted. Um, you know, the entire list is something like 300 words, and you can only operate within the confines of those words. You know, if there's no possessive version or plural version of that word, you can't use it. They compared it to a literary straitjacket, but this is what really makes him important because he's writing books that kids want to read, that teachers love because they got the pedagogy behind them, and that parents of all people enjoy reading to their kids. So from that point on, that's when he kind of becomes what we know and love as Dr. Seuss. He's still writing what he calls the big books. In a book like The Lorax, for example, 
doesn't contain that word list. He's working outside the confines of the word list as well in some of his other books, even as any book you see with a beginner book's imprint on it has that word list. So that's the point at which he really becomes Dr. Seuss. And it's a lot of really important work without realizing it because his parents and his teachers and his readers, we just loved reading his stories without realizing that we've actually got an educational pedagogy behind it. I mean, that's the best kind of pedagogy, right? It's when Absolutely. it's happening without you realizing that it's happening. And that's why it's so incredibly powerful. Let's just talk a little bit about his politics. He's committed to helping children learn how to read. He is advancing certain agendas, which for his time are... Dangerous. Yeah, dangerous, <laughs> right? Outright yeah. dangerous. So he's a man who, if we could just update him to our times, I'd say would be a hero right now. The issue is that he like most other human beings, is complex, and he's evolving. And there's something quite troubling about how we are using a modern lens of our current-day morality to judge his work. So let's move on to the controversy. I don't even know if it's a controversy, really, but the big brouhaha that happened when the estate pulled six of his books. And and then right. I want to talk to you about Philip Nell's work about Cat in the Hat and the origins of it. And let me just start by saying I, too, did not grow up with Dr. Seuss. This is really something that I got into with my children as I'm raising them now. And I've enjoyed his books immensely. So when the news came that the estate is pulling six of his books, I did not like it. What was your reaction? The thing about that list is it's books most people have never heard of. My response when I first heard it was, which ones are you pulling, first of all? Because this is curation, I think, more than banishment by these books. Absolutely. Um, but when they gave me the list, you know, knowing what I know about those books, I get it. And we'll talk a little bit more about the problems in those books. But it then became a really easy talking point for, you know, Ted Cruz and others and Don Jr. to run around waving copies of Green Eggs and Ham and the Cat in the Hat and say, Dr. Seuss is being canceled. The six books, so we can just have them on the table here. Is, sure. And to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, If I Ran the Zoo, McGilligot's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. That's it. Cat in the Hat is still out there. Green Eggs and Ham, The Grinch, everything you kind of know and love is still out there. What's interesting about these six is with the exception of, I think, one of them, they're all from a very tightly confined period in his career. They're from like the mid-50s. They're produced at a time right after Seuss has actually gotten very serious about writing stories specifically aimed at young readers. But the issues you run into them is he gets what I call pictographically lazy in some of these books. But two of them, I think, are very significant especially in the context of Seuss's career. One of them, McGilligot's Pool, is one of the few that is a completely full color. The drawings are in these beautiful sort of watercolor washes. They're, it's a gorgeous book. The other one is If I Ran the Zoo, which I think poetically is one of his best. I think it moves better than any one of them. I think it's very clever linguistically. And it's also the first time the word nerd appears anywhere in print in American English. So it's sort of like culturally significant in a way. And again, we can talk about whether those books are banned, but those two in particular, not only say banned, I'm sorry, curated. Not banned, but um, curated. Yeah. <laughs> right, pulled. You know, but there's still interesting things going on in those books, which makes it a tough call. Yeah, I mean, curation happens all the time. So let me just be clear, you know, librarians curate, estates curate, that's all fine. It's the rationale behind the curation right. that I think is the rubbing point for me. So let's get into it. Tell us why these books were pulled. So Seuss, again, the term I use on this is pictographically lazy. He's writing and drawing books for kids. And so when he's trying to convey an exotic culture, 
he tends to rely on easy tropes. In the same way as any rich person or mayor for Seuss wears striped pants and a coat and a top hat and a monocle, anytime he has to convey an exotic culture, it tends to be overtly, racistly oriental, Japanese, you know, Asian looking. So he's got real problems in there. Um, in one of the books, he's talking about fish coming from, I think, the Arctic, and they look like Eskimos. Yep. You know, they're in parkas with the slanted eyes. Uh, he has another one, If I Ran the Zoo. They're not called African tribesmen, but they clearly look like caricatures of African tribesmen. So Seuss has problems in his conveyance of exotic cultures, even as he's not necessarily calling them Asian cultures or African cultures. They sort of have that stench of racist work that especially that you would see throughout the 20s and 30s and 40s. And Seuss had problems even in the 20s in some of his advertising work. He falls into, again, very easy tropes on African-Americans. By the time we get to the work in the 50s, he's not specifically drawn African-Americans, but it's definitely conveying that sort of look about them. So the problematic books tend to be in the depiction of what I call exotic culture more than anything else. Once you articulate a rationale like that for pulling books, what begins to happen is that people start objecting to why these books are on shelves any longer. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other group, like you said, who picks up a book and says, here's a cancellation. You've kind of politicized his work in a way, not you, but the state, that runs very counter to historical approach towards understanding an author's work. It also deprives, in my mind, me of wonderful conversations that I can have with my children about depictions and how they've right. evolved over time and deprives my children of learning about how depiction has a history. Not everything is unproblematic and it always has been problematic. So learning the arc of how people have depicted others is critical. And I would say this as an immigrant to the U.S., that I want them to know that because it's an evolution of thinking that they should be aware of. I remember when I was growing up, one of my, and it remains one of my favorite cartoons to watch is The Jungle Book. Which has some very problematic imagery. It has some essentializing of racial tropes that are from my part of the world. So you would imagine that that would piss me off even more than some others. But nonetheless, I'm drawn to it and... I'm grateful for having been exposed to it because I now have the tools to pick it apart and see and analyze things critically. But if we keep removing these things from the world of children, it's so sanitized or it'll end up so sanitized that they won't even have these tools. Does that bother you? With Seuss, you've still got 60 books left for him. If it was his only work, I think it would be very different. But you do have the arc of Seuss's life and work. And I think they're important in that context, because when we start discussing these books, people say, well, isn't Seuss just racist as hell anyway? And they start trotting out advertising work from the 20s and 30s, which is definitely racist. And some of the work he produced in World War II, at the request of the American government, was overtly anti-Japanese, because that was actually official policy. So when you start putting together the punch list of problematic Seuss work, and there's a study done of all Dr. Seuss work, which includes that, and the percentage on the amount of racist work was, you know, alarmingly high. But it's because there's so much American propaganda in it as well. I mean, he's tracking U.S. policy at this point. But what's important about Seuss is, and this is where Philip Nell and I have a, a slight disagreement. And I know Phil, and he's a great guy and was very, actually very helpful when I was putting the book together. But he tends to see racism in Seuss as a feature. And I tend to see it as a bug. Because the arc of Seuss's career, you can see him at one point actually sort of wrestling with this. And he does say later in life, you know, some of that work I produced, and he's talking a lot about his World War II cartoons, he says, you know, I, I thought that was funny at that time, and today I'm just not so sure. 
even in his lifetime, he sort of acknowledged and was wrestling with this. So I think those books are important in understanding the context of Seuss's life. There's a book, The Seuss, The Whole Seuss, and Nothing But The Seuss by Dr. Cohen, who talks about Seuss's work in that context as well. I can understand pulling it as a kid's book, I think, at this point. It might be important to maybe put all six together in a collection with some introductions and some context. Um, Hi, Seuss Enterprises. I'm happy to do that for you. But something like that to keep them in print. For example, in Seuss's lifetime, one of his first books for Random House, The Seven Lady Godivas, was taken out of print. First of all, it was a bomb, but it was his Naked Lady book. It became such an item of interest that it's now back in print and nobody even thinks about Seuss and his naked, which aren't really that sexy or anything anymore, but it was his Naked Lady book. Yeah. That book was just permitted to go out of print in his lifetime because the source material was a little scandalous in 1930. I know, Brian. I'm still going to disagree with you. I, mm -hmm. I can see where you're saying. I, too, get the rationale, but I feel like it's... It's that kind of uber control that we're doing of what children are exposed to, which is preventing them from, in my view, really becoming mm. adults and really embarking on that journey of learning how to think critically about the very material that they're reading and having something to hang critique on. Like, we'll never have it. I love your idea of reprinting them with an introduction, with more context. I think that is superb, and I'm always in favor of that. But pulling them still, and then spelling out the rationale, you give other people the baton to beat other people with and say, take this off your shelves because this is racist. What is the precedent that has been laid? And what can now happen? So for instance, The Cat and the Hat, which has been so central in helping children learn how to read. Nell's reading of that book is that it is drawing on minstrelry, it's right. essentially racist, and tomorrow I can see someone pressuring the estate to pull that. And the trouble with these things is even if you can understand the rationale, what is the precedent they're setting, and do we want to go down that road? Yeah, I mean, I see Cat in the Hat as, you know, Felix the Cat. <laughs> and, you know, Phil talks a lot about the white gloves on the hands of the minstrel. I mean, look at Bugs Bunny. If you have a cartoon with a character who has to pick things up, you have to give them a hand. And for a cat, um, you have to use gloves for that a lot of times to convey that pictographically for people so they understand it. So so I think Seuss's decisions in, in the way he draws the cat in the hat came from a very different source than Phil thinks. Mm. My response on this the entire time has been, I get it. And while I get it, and it is a matter of the issue of representation, you know, with Seuss, it's tough because what is the slippery slope with him? As he often said throughout his life, I'm not drawing real people. You know, somebody once took him to task for not having enough women. And he said, you know, if you can tell which of these characters is female, I'll, I'll put you in my will. He didn't see that these were depictions of race, gender, anything like that. So I'm sort of struggling with this as well, because I, as an English major and as a writer, I don't like removing books from print. The one with the fish wearing the parka, I think is probably the easiest one to be, to go, you kind of look at and go, ooh, ooh. Yeah, I can see why that one's a problem. So I guess I'm going to weasel word my way out of this on because again, I get it. I struggle with this one as well, but I get where Seuss is coming from on this. It's against their brand and Seuss is a corporation now, whether we like it or not. Yeah. So it's off brand for them. And I think part of it too is this seemed to come up every single year with these books. And I think Seuss Enterprises just got tired of it. Yeah, there is a corporate logic and I can see that. It is a tough question, Brian, and yeah. I think that's why we're struggling with it. I think perhaps I have a firmer line on it than you do. Maybe it's easier for me, right? Because Could I didn't be. write Could the biography totally of the fair. man as well. But it also comes from a place where I have grown up in a country where books have been banned. Right. And I know where that road goes down, and it troubles me to see it happen in the U.S. in particular. Speaking of a country where books have been banned, the very year that Salman Rushdie's Satanic Verses had a fatwa put on it, 
was the year that the Lorax in California became controversial. Now, the Lorax, we would hail today as presaging the environmentalist movement, drawing attention to the very kinds of issues that we want our politicians to take up today and take a stand on because it's really about the survival of the human race in many ways. Right. Tell us a little bit about what happened in California. Well, with the exception of the six books that were just removed, the Lorax is the most frequently banned Seuss book. It tends to be banned mostly in the Northwest and in communities that rely upon logging and natural resources because the Lorax is Seuss's story about environmentalism, about, as Seuss himself always said, I'm not anti-logging. He said, you know, I live in a house made out of wood and I write books that are printed on paper. I'm not against any of this. I'm for taking care of what we've got. And so I think people kind of miss Seuss's message in there because the tragedy, the terror, I mean, that book scared me as a kid because the, t the terror in that book is that we plow through our natural resources in it so fast in the name of profit. Remember, they're, they're using yes. everything to make sneeds in the book. And he does a really great job of showing you the consequences of taking one resource away, which is the truffle tree, and how that drives away the creatures and how the pollution pollutes not just the air, but the water. So the fish leave. I mean, it completely wipes out the area. Mm. It's a tragedy. And when you're a kid, it's kind of terrifying. But ends on, I won't necessarily say a positive note, but the narrator tosses out the window the last seed to a child and says, you know, unless somebody like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And throws the seed out there and tells them, you know, if you take care of this and plant it and watch it grow, everything might come back. So he ends with a very obvious message. But that book itself, when you're watching the way they use up the resources, it's completely irresponsible. And I think that was Seuss's message more than anything else wasn't don't cut down the truffle trees. It's manage your resources carefully so you can continue to take advantage of all that is being offered by the universe. But at the same time, renewing that resource so you can continue to use it. So it continues to be his most banned book? Yeah, that's the one that tends to get flagged. And again, it's primarily in Northwestern communities. I can't remember the last time it happened. It tends to come about, for example, when Congress was talking about like, and this was in the 90s, you know, the Tongass forest and forest management. It tends to get attached to political issues. Surprise, surprise. But Seuss himself even talked about how this book was kind of rare for him because he wrote it out of anger. His house in, in La Jolla is high up on a mountaintop and he's got this great view of the ocean and the hill. And he was standing at the window of his office one day and looking out and seeing sort of cookie cutter development cutting into the hillside and moving up the hill. And as he always said later, I got mad. And Seuss didn't usually write books out of anger. And so the Lorax is his response to dealing with that, with that anger. And again, it had to do more with the responsible management. He didn't begrudge that there was going to be development in La Jolla and that, you know, people were cutting trees because we use that for paper. It was just the complete lack of thought that had gone into it. So that that really sent him off. And it was a coincidence that his book came out right around the same time as the first Earth Day. He didn't actually prompt Earth Day because it was in development at the same time. You know, we had rivers that were on fire and things like that. So environmentalism was around and it was on our mm. minds. And he was sort of part of that perfect storm. I think the story is excellent, actually, to illustrate how much of the controversy around book banning, even today, is about political issues. And it's about corporate interests. It's become very identitarian. I feel like we have many situations right now where the books that are being banned by school districts are actually books 
the very kinds of books that we would want our children to read, that we have spent so long advocating for, which have representations of different kinds of people, sympathetic representations, more honest representations, or which are touching issues about LGBTQ issues, which are so important. Yet, these other books that are being cut out. And this is the trouble with banning books is once <laughs> we you we're, think we're, they, we're both struggling with this, aren't we? Um, that's a tough issue. Yeah, I know it's a tough issue. But my point remains like, you know, there's often one side that thinks that it has the right reasons for banning something. And the trouble with it is that nobody has the right reasons because the other side equally feels that they have the right reasons. And then once we give into any kind of banning, we are left with very little on the bookshelves. I recently saw this picture that was taken, it was put on Twitter, where there was a bookshelf, and then they removed every book from that bookshelf that might be problematic. And there were two books left. Mm -hmm. And it was such a powerful visual of what happens when we go down this road. So I do hope that our listeners who are listening to the story (laughs) of the Lorax and how it remains one of the most challenged books in his repertoire can see how it connects to the conversation about book banning today. Let's come back to Seuss as a man and his politics. He actively was anti-prejudice. I mean, The Sneetches is the most accessible to children, I think, to teach them about what prejudice is and how superficial it can be. I completely agree with you on this. Keeping in context of Seuss's career and life and his trajectory and his own politics, his own, Seuss's own father was a staunch Republican. And Seuss and his father often squabbled over politics. His father at one point ran for mayor of Springfield and kind of got his ass handed to him. And, and Seuss was giving himself credit for being very magnanimous and about not tweaking his father over that. And Seuss often talked about how hard it was. It's hard to believe, but he said how hard it was at one time to be a Democrat in Southern California. He said (laughs) when he would go to register as a voter, as a Democratic voter, they would often tell him he was in the wrong place. His credentials there are solid in that regard. And I think another project I would point to even pre-Sneech is Horton Hears a Who. Oh, yeah. Because Seuss, you know, again, let's look at his World War II work when he's deliberately producing anti-Japanese propaganda. Seuss actually fell in love with Japan and the Japanese people and Japanese art and culture. Post-World War II, he traveled to Japan and got to visit the people and was ferried around by a translator, an academic, whose name I will not attempt to pronounce. But the reason I'm going to tell you about that is because when Seuss writes Horton Hears a Who, many, including me, see this as Seuss's almost open apology to the Japanese people, saying, we hear you. We know you're here. We get it. And that book is actually dedicated to his translator and his guide when he was in Japan. So this is sort of Seuss's love letter to the Japanese people. He never makes that mistake ever again. You'll never see, you know, an overtly anti-Japanese cartoon. Again, there have been people, if you look at the books that were pulled, they've got the problems with the depiction of Asian culture. But if you look at it in the context of Seuss's attitude toward the Japanese in particular, it doesn't gel because to Seuss, those were not Japanese cultures. They were just exotic cultures, which is, again, where he gets in trouble. So that's sort of a, a first benchmark we have in watching his trajectory change. By the time you get to something like the Sneetches, which is about, uh, I'm going to get the timeline wrong, it's mid-50s, you can't write a book like the Sneetches if you are racist. If racism is a feature I don't believe you can write a book like The Sneetches, which we're still talking about it. Kids still know that book. It's still pulled out as a prime example of Seuss's work doing good. It's one of those that's sort of almost programmed into our, especially at least American DNA. Like we all sort of know what The Sneetches is about, even if we haven't read it. And the whole point of that book is the way you look doesn't matter. 
You know, it's what's inside that matters. A very easy message. And again, I just don't think you can write that book and mean it as sincerely as Seuss does if racism is a feature and not a bug. And I'm just flicking through the pages of Nell's book right now because I, I believe he mentions that it almost didn't get published because someone said to him when he showed them the draft of the Sneetches that for some reason they thought it was anti-Semitic. And so the man was so sensitive that he almost didn't publish it until someone else came along and said, hang on, you're missing the point. Yeah, it was just a friend of his did say, ooh, this seems anti-Semitic. And then somebody who worked with said, no, 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 they're crazy. They're missing the point. You're fine. I don't know how long Seuss actually, you know, mulled over that that comment. He was very, very sensitive to criticism, but he was reassured by, I think it was Bob Bernstein, I think, at Random House, who said, no, 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 you're fine. That brings me to the point, another point, which is that these kind of didactic measures which dictate what will be published or what will be kept on a shelf are fundamentally misunderstanding what the purpose of art and literature is in society and especially children's literature. Yeah, and you know, the thing about Seuss is more than most, he gets hit from both the right and the left on it. <laughs> you know, he gets hit from the right on the left, from the left on these others. But you know, I, I see this issue, having written about Jim Henson, when people talk about Sesame Street nowadays too. Some people say, well, Sesame Street's gotten so political. Sesame Street was good back when it wasn't political. And I just have to point out, if you think Sesame Street wasn't political, you aren't paying attention. Yeah. You know, 1972 would like a word on this. So if you think there's a problem, you need to examine where you think the problem really is, because it's probably in your perception of the art rather than the art itself. So I do think it's a conversation worth having. And, and I like the way you've pointed out that, you know, sometimes it just depends on where you're sitting, the way you interpret and what you're bringing to it. And that does make it hard when you start talking about context. And my context is different than your context. Even just the two of us who agree on this, our experiences are very different. So I think the dialogue is important. And I hope we continue that because we're going to see this a lot more. And I do often worry about what's next. I'm constantly defending Sesame Street from people who say, oh, it's gotten overtly political and Jim Henson would be appalled by that. And it just ain't so. But that one tends to be attacks from, from the right. And those seem easier to defend against than attacks from the left. Well, it depends on who you're defending them to, right? That's correct. That's Again, correct. It all depends on the context, right? This is my problem with it. I think that any kind of didactic approach is fundamentally oblivious of context. And context is key in, yeah. in art and literature. So perhaps, maybe I've convinced you that they shouldn't have pulled them. I don't know. Well, you know, I mean, the, I mean the, the tough part on this is is as the white male on this. You know, yeah. if I say, I understand this stuff looks really bad, but let's put it in context. And I get told, there you go. Con it's always context. Context doesn't matter. The work is racist. And I have to sort of like back up and say, you know, we actually do need to talk about the context of this. But as a white male, it's a tough conversation to have. Yeah, and it speaks to how difficult it's become to have a real conversation because everything is refracted through this identitarian lens so that even if you're commenting on something, your identity becomes a reason to dismiss your comment right. in its entirety. I'm not saying that identity doesn't matter at all, but it can't be used as the only yardstick to to measure what someone is saying. <laughs> I always get, of course you would say that, Brian. Of course you would say that. <laughs> yeah. You know, as a white male, but one who considers themselves, you know, a bedwetting liberal. It's one of those people who are like, you know, you've got this knee-jerk reaction. You're defending Dr. Seuss. Well, you know, what have you given up on your liberal credentials? Let me explain. And then, it, you know, the response is, well, there you go again. There's your white privilege showing. And I get that. But the context really does matter. Because if I put down some of Seuss's ad work from the early 1930s, Wow. And if that's the fall, all you ever saw, guilty as charged with him. 
But that's not the whole story. And that's what's really important with Seuss. And, and that's, again, why I think it's great to have this discussion about what I call the six now. There's a great line from Smokey and the Bandit, if I can use this reference, where Burt Reynolds says, uh, you know, Miss Frog, sometimes how smart or how dumb you are depends on the part of the United States you're standing in when you say it. Um, which exactly. is definitely which is definitely true when it comes to things like this. <laughs> and one final question. Let me ask you, right? His drawing, let's move towards his artwork. In some ways, it is fundamentally caricature. It's caricature of other kinds of animals. He certainly isn't caricaturing women or men in particular, but the form of caricature, cartooning by essence, to some degree requires some kind of essentializing that right. is visual essentializing. And if we want that to not happen at all, I don't think that form can really continue. I agree. And I think that's to the heart of where he gets into trouble. Part of that comes from the fact that you're conveying stereotypes at times and stereotypes in the basis sense of it. Again, that's what Seuss is doing in a lot of these things. When he draws a sultan, a sultan for him tends to have a, a turban and pointed slippers. Quick and easy, made the point we knew who it was on the page. Those are sort of the easy tropes, if you want to call it that, that Seuss gets into when he's doing it to try to convey that information very quickly. That's what cartoons have been doing for thousands of years. Correct. It's the reason Egyptians drew the face in profile, because you got the nose. People knew it was a face immediately, as hard, as weird as that seems. We've always engaged in easy stereotypes in our art to convey that message very quickly. It goes back to interpretation and where you're sitting and how you look at something. Yeah, and, and intention. An intention, and we cannot take the intention out. I absolutely resent and resist this movement where it's all about impact and no intention, because then we're sitting on judgment on each other on without the reasons to judge them, you know? Right. Isn't it fascinating that the books being pulled or generally the people being canceled today are people whose intentions on the whole are not bad, but those whose intentions are actively bad and who are using these stereotypes and trading in them to denigrate and be nasty are getting away scot-free because oh no one's calling them out on it. So right. we're kind of eating our own tail, uh, so to speak. <laughs> well, I can't put it any better than that. Absolutely. It, it makes me blow a gasket. Well, Brian, thank you so much. This was such a fun conversation to have. And I'm feeling very fortunate to have had the chance to talk to you. And I, I so much appreciate it. And I have to say that you've given me a lot to think about on the way to discuss this and articulate it. Because when it was announced that the six books were being pulled, I immediately dove for cover. Like I got called by NPR and Jesse Waters at Fox and people who wanted me to go. And I just hid under my coffee table because I wasn't sure how to articulate or talk about this yet. But I'm really glad you and I have, have talked about it because it, it, it's a tough issue. And as we discussed, I'm still having a hard time on figuring out exactly where I come down on the curation of those six, but I'm working on it. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Brian J. Jones is the author of Becoming Dr. Seuss. Throughout American history, books for children have been routinely pulled from publication, banned from school libraries, and even burned. In the case of Dr. Seuss, the concern was over what we now recognize as racist caricatures. For other books, the crime was in depicting sexual violence or LGBTQ characters or just painful historical events. Whatever the reason, and there always will be a reason, it is our children who lose, lose the opportunity to engage with reality and with complexity. As a parent and as an educator, this is certainly not what I want for either my children or my students. If you like what you heard today and want more thought-provoking content, 
Please become a paying subscriber to Booksmart Studios. Subscribers get transcripts, full interviews, and bonus segments. Before I sign off, one very earnest request. Please rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with anyone you think would enjoy it. Our success at Booksmart depends as much on you as on us. Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Furlow. And I am Amna Khalid.